We believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. If you enjoy the show, please consider showing us a little love. Support us on Patreon, subscribe, leave a review and follow us on social media. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Tonight we are joined by the freshly Nebula Award winning, amongst many other awards, Aliette de Bodard. We were inspired to speak to Aliette about representations of motherhood in speculative fiction after reading her excellent essay on motherhood and erasure, which if you haven't read, you definitely should take a look and we'll include a link in the episode notes. But what better way to introduce this topic than to quote Aliette herself? Motherhood is defined by its absence. We aren't characters, we are people-shaped holes. We are empty spaces or hollowed-out characters whose sole purpose, when the story bothers to give us one, is to erase ourselves for the sake of our children. So before we dive into the discussion, Elliot, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? So, hi, my name is Elliot. I am an engineer by day. I um, design signaling systems for trains. And when I don't do that, um, I simultaneously hold the job of mother to two young children and a writer of science fiction and fantasy. I have a trilogy with Golan's uh, Dominion of the Fallen, of which the last book, The House of Sundering Flames, is coming out in July. And I've also got a series uh, called the Suya Universe, which is basically a Vietnamese space opera. The last volume of which the tea master and the detective was the one that won the nebula. In your essay, you talk about the lack of mothers in a lot of fiction, but especially speculative fiction, and that a lot of them just they've died off screen as such, or you know, before the story even begins. Mm-hmm. It seems, you know, the obvious thing is people say, oh, well, you know, childbirth is dangerous, women die. But that doesn't feel like an adequate explanation. I mean, why do you really think that they're so absent? I feel like, um, I mean, to me, part of the reason is that SF and for sure a certain subset of SF started as those pulp boys adventures in which parents, and especially mothers, were seen as a hindrance to adventure. So it was kind of easier not to have them in the plot anymore. And also part of this is obviously the... um, So we do talk about, you know, death of mothers in childbirth, which would have been the majority cause of death, but most likely in the 19th century. But the thing is... Those tropes do take a while to come out of the system. The funny thing to me is that one thing that happened with more regularity in the 19th century than mothers dying in childbirth was children dying in childhood. If you look um, in the article, I quote the rates of mortality of children. So what they usually do is the five year. So it's the percentage of children who lived past their fifth year. Um, And that percentage for most of the 19th century is stuck around 40%. So about, you know, a bit less than half the children would not live past their fifth year. And it's, it's very intriguing to me that the trope of mothers dying in childbirth has remained so prominent in fiction, but we've forgotten about children 
dying in childhood. We've forgotten about babies dying. I must admit that when I heard, sorry, when I read that piece on your article, I was like, this is the this is the answer we've been looking for to when the question is, oh, well, you know, women always die in childbirth. And it's like, well, that's not a good enough reason to have them doing it in novels, because now, like you say, we can counter with, yeah, but kids are always dying. And how often do kids actually die in novels? It's, you know, if it does, it gets a really bad reception. But you're quite right. It's the infant mortality was terrible in the same time that pregnancy was, you know, a main cause, sorry, not pregnancy, birth rather, was a main cause of uh, female fatality so what what's with that <laughs> well I also think like you mentioned reception right and the thing is um people do have an adverse reaction to children dying in childbirth uh, children dying in childhood sorry but um we don't have that to mothers dying in fiction and part of it is of course a feedback loop right we are used to mothers not being there um one like another of the examples I quote in the article is the otherwise excellent Black Panther, which came heavily recommended to me. And I went into the movie with the full intention of enjoying it. And I got through the entirety of the movie and I was like, so hang on, Killmonger's father dies. Right. And it's this hugely traumatic and emotional moment for Killmonger. But nobody even mentions that there's a mother at all. And Nobody who'd seen that movie thought it fit to mention that to me because it had become invisible. It was such a usual trope that everyone was like, oh, yeah, no mother, no big deal. There's never any mothers, right? So we don't really need to worry about that. So I do feel that to a large extent, they are self-perpetuating because we get used to them. We get inured to them and they become part of, you know, our standard vocabulary is, okay, mother dead, mother absent mother dying in childbirth, yeah, sure, no big deal, in, you know, in a sort of very bad and angry-inducing way, obviously. I feel also that some of it is, in general, in society, mothers being fairly invisible. Obviously, I can only speak from my experience and my experience living in France as a mother, but there's a tendency to assume that the job of raising two young children is also not a big deal so it's not a big deal when the person who does this job goes missing so to speak in fiction or elsewhere that's crazy isn't it i think that that's ridiculous isn't it like the the job of child rearing which is kind of i always find this ironic because it's like technically something you know everyone can do um but it's the hardest thing to do and that this is played down so much in fiction. We just don't have, you know, the, the, the it's almost like the childhood of the hero is um, peopled with kind of his own exploits rather than a nurturing environment. And the, the parents are generally, this, this all I tend to find wraps up with the kind of chosen one where the parent or one parent is absent. And they these heroes never seem to have this kind of nurturing environment in which they grow up you know to and then that's used to say obviously why they're a hidden hero or a prince in disguise or something and um it yeah it's just it's so ubiquitous mm, yeah i feel like i'm now thinking about the topic of you know the certainly the absence of nurturing if not the outright abusive parents and i don't know where that is coming from i mean you, you do see it in the you know a lot of the the grim brothers tales for instance 
were the hero has generally abusive parents other rather than absent parents actually there's this sort of very very disquieting expectation that you need an unhappy childhood to become special which is really fucked up six ways to sundays but it's interesting I think one of the problems is that a really popular subgenre of books, particularly fantasy books, is the coming of age drama. And I must admit that certainly my experience growing up and also my experience watching my daughter grow up is that at that point you do tend to separate from your parents naturally. Um, and you sort of you are going out on your own and you are you know, moving away from them. So from that point of view, I can kind of see where they're coming from. If you've got a teenage protagonist or a, a young yeah. adult protagonist, they are naturally moving away from their parents. So that that is acceptable. And having, you know, parents take a back seat is kind of done and dusted. I guess the problem then comes with why do we need to kill them off? Why can't they just be in the background or go off and have their own adventures? Yeah. No, yeah, I think, well, I think part of it is like, it's, it's laziness in the sense of like, you know, if, if they're dead, you don't actually have to bother there is that yeah yeah I'm a writer I get the impulse I'm just not really sure that's the right solution actually I'm convinced that is not the right solution um and yes to a certain extent I feel like a lot of the genre has stuck with the trappings of the coming of age even though the narratives themselves may not directly be about coming of age anymore so it's come with this expectation that the one of the central martyrs of the narration is going to be breaking away from your family. Um, and another prong of that is a very exacerbated form of individualism, which feels very Western to me. You know, some kind of glorification of the fact that the hero is alone uh, with possibly like a few, you know, sidekicks that they've picked along the way, but most certainly not their family, which is really superfluous at that point. And, you know, certainly um, to quote um, one of my kids' books, explorers don't take their mummies and daddies. It's interesting that you, you mentioned sort of this kind of the hardship thing, because when you're learning to write and, and you're trying to create a story, it's this whole put your protagonist up the tree, then throw rocks at it. And it's like taking away a kind of nurturing childhood or, you know, any parent parental figures could be argued as a way of making things harder for your protagonist. But it just seems like there are so many more interesting ways that they could be put through hardship. Yeah, I, f I feel like it's a trope, right? And I feel yeah. like, you know, it's... It's not we don't need stories about abusive childhoods or neglected childhoods because we very much do. But at the moment, what we're not terribly getting are stories about normal childhoods. Um, no, normal is not the word that I wanted to use. More nurturing uh, kind of childhoods, you know, in which the parents are present and maybe not everything is rosy, but certainly um, there's nothing quite on the level of hardships that heroes um, in fantasy you have to deal with I feel like you know the whole you you mentioned the fact that we need to put our hero um, in difficulty yeah I feel it's it's an easy fallback solution because again it's something that's very much 
become very much ingrained in our vocabulary of solutions. Oh, that's an easy one. That's the first one off the top of the pile of like things I can do to my hero. So that's the one that we end up reaching for if we don't dig deeper. I think there's also this assumption that if the parents are there, they're going to kind of take over control and that their main their main role within any story and within life in general is to protect children. And I think the coming of age drama is a perfect chance to ex- explore the other side of that because it's quite true that when they're very young, you do kind of look after them an awful lot. And the thing that people like mostly about the protagonist is having them be proactive. And it's very difficult to be a proactive kid when you're still learning and it's understandable that you're kind of going to have your parental guidance and things there. Um, but obviously coming of age is, is slightly different. And I was just thinking a moment ago of Stranger Things and all the examples I can think of where kids are proactive all seem to be horror. So um, A Quiet Place is another good one or The Walking Dead. And I find that's quite interesting because obviously in fantasy, it does focus on the heroic journey and learning and things like that. Whereas I tend to find horror, it is you and your family against the world. So you get much stronger parental influences and characters there because they can have their own role in fighting the evil without actually detracting from the proactivity of their children and, you know, completing the quest. Mm. Um, it's I think it's part of that is also... Um the trope of the chosen one in fantasy, which you don't have in horror so much. And one of the things with that trope is that the hero has to do the heroism, but they have to do it alone or to be at the center of it at any rate, right? So there is, you do have the party of adventurers or the party of heroes who uh, go on a quest, but it does tend to crystallize around a few people, if not one person. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. And as a result, everybody sort of falls by the wayside, but no one quite so much as the parents. And another, I mean, another thing that I broached in the article was, you know, it's, and I understand as a parent this desire to protect our children, this belief that we can protect them against anything, but actually, you know, we can't, right? My um, grandparents could not protect my parents from the Vietnamese-American war. And, you know, it would be victim-blaming to say that they should have. Because how, you know, when large-scale events happen, um, a lot of the times they are beyond our control. And we try to do the best that we can for our children. But I also think that... And I don't know if it's specific to fantasy, but there's certainly this idea in genre that I see that not only does the protagonist have to be proactive, but also the ending has to come solely from within their own action. And under that is the underlying assumption that everything can be controlled and everything can be defeated or mastered or brought to heel or some variation of that which again doesn't feel to me like it reflects what's happening in reality but has become part of this nebulous sea of genre tropes yeah it's it's really weird for me to think about these stories where these sort of young people have to pull away from their parents and want to be completely separate I was an only child and my parents were absolutely my partners in crime. I 
played with them. I had adventures with my parents. And it seems bizarre to me that then that couldn't be reflected in a fantasy story. Well, that's interesting because I'm an only child and I had, I was thinking about this and I had a, a weird experience when I was a kid and I lived in a rural community and we were, my father was the doctor, so we were buying a four wheel drive. And um, we went and my father drove, you know, various Land Rovers and Discoveries and things like that. And in one of them, um, my mother and I had to sit in the back and there was a grill separating us between um, the drivers and and where we were sitting. This was back in the days before, you know, they had car seats and rules and regulations about where kids could sit and when I used to ride in the boot and things like that. Um, and I, I must have been about eight, nine, I suppose, maybe a bit younger. And I pretended that um, I was a princess because I was thoroughly bored pretending I was a princess being carted off somewhere and had this little fancy kind of role play thing going in the back of, in my head and when I told my mum later she's like oh, you should have told me I could have played along we could have been princesses together and I didn't like to tell her but at the time my first reaction was mothers can't be princesses <laughs> so you know for me it was the exact opposite to Megan that it was this case that parents were never involved in adventures um even though I was an only child I, I don't know what that says about different societies, maybe in Australia or Britain, but certainly, you know, when I was growing up, there was nothing that suggested that mothers could have fun with you in a kind of imaginary way. Mm. Yeah, my experience was, yeah, very much that my parents were not really having fun with me in an imaginary way, unless they were really indulging me, which I felt. I guess to me as an adult, that hasn't translated in that, I still want my stories to include children and parents who do things together. Yeah, which is good. <laughs> We'd love to see that. We, we've touched on it a little bit, but when we have kind of three options for mothers in speculative fiction, you've got the saintly dead mother, because if they're dead, they, they're always good. They were always wonderful. We can't say anything about bad about them. Or there's one that's alive, whether or not it's the biological mother or a stepmother you know it's the evil kind of one or there's the one that's alive but doomed to sacrifice herself entirely for her children mm. i don't know if we have an answer as to why we've only got these kind of options and why there's nothing in between or do we ever think that we'll have an evil dead mother and a lovely alive stepmother or you know it it just seems like we these are kind of these lines and these these tropes, but nobody seems willing to really transgress them. Well, I have to give a shout out for a lovely alive stepmother, uh, although she isn't very present within the story. But um, John Connolly wrote the most amazing book called The Book of Lost Things, and in it, it's about a young boy coming to terms with his mother dying. Um, and he gets a stepmother, and he ends up trying to escape and going to a fantasy world. It's a I won't spoil it for you, but it is an amazing book if you find time to read it. And it turns out that actually his stepmother is really quite nice and trying to help him. And there's quite a bit of dramatic irony because at the beginning, you can kind of see how Rose, the stepmother, is trying to help the boy. Um, but at the same time, you can also see why the boy really, really hates it. And, you know, how David, sorry, the boy's called David, how David really doesn't want her there. And it, it's kind of a... Like you say, because it's built so strongly in fairy tales, this book, The Book of Lost Things, it's nice and refreshing to see that someone has put in a fairy tale stepmother who is really trying to be nice and trying to help out. And although that's thrown back in her face and she doesn't necessarily um, come 
be directly involved. There are allegories within the story that still refer back to her. And I just thought that was something nice and refreshing, but it's certainly not something we see an awful lot of. Mm. In the Kate Elliott's Quarter 5 trilogy, there's a Kiva who's the protagonist's mother and who actually spends a bunch of the narration, the first book, being pregnant and gives birth and survives the birth and, you know, there's no death or no trauma. Uh, and then who turns out to be a significant character within the, the world of the book and to have her own agenda and her own storyline. <clears throat> And to be quite a complex character who's, you know, been trying to, both trying to provide for her children, but also to provide for the future of her country. Because, like, the con- the country that they live in has been colonized by another country. And she's been trying to be part of a resistance movement while raising, uh, I think, five daughters, four or five daughters. Again, that's quite a complex character that I feel that. Uh, Part of the reason that we don't see them, actually, is because a lot of the mothers tend to be secondary characters and they fall back on established tropes because they don't have the complexity of even an important secondary character. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's like, in a weird way, there seems to be, because it's which comes first, the chicken or the egg. There are none out there at the moment for people to say, oh, that's a really great character. I want to write one like that. But then again, there won't be any out there until people start writing them and other people read the books and say, well, that's fantastic. Why didn't I think of a, a mother as um, as a fantastic character that I can use and explore the complexities <laughs> of that? It's almost like you need someone out there, well, like our very own Elliot, sort of pushing the whole issue of mothers being interesting characters, the stories within their own rights, for it to reach a wider audience and other writers who then go, yeah, I'm going to give that a go. Yeah, I feel, I mean, it is a self-perpetuating circle, so it's quite hard to break because also the very first ones that you produce are not going to fall on the lines of the trope. So people are going to go like, hey, these are actually weird characters and I couldn't connect to them and I don't really know why. That's if you're lucky. If you're not lucky, it's just going to be they all sucked and this was such a sucky book and I (laughs) wouldn't throw it against the wall. But, you know, there'd probably be a range of reactions. But yeah, I feel like, Certainly, we need more of these out there because uh, one of the things that I did actually was I tried to make a list of mothers in in genre that I put on my website, and it was hard. <laughs> uh, actually, admittedly, I restricted the list to mothers of color, but still, it was hard. And even you know, finding mothers in science fiction and fantasy that were not because like. Whenever I see a list for mothers in science fiction and fantasy, there'll be like Cersei Lannister on it, and I'll be like, "Yeah, I feel there are better examples out there." <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was seeing lists with things like the the Alien from Alien as a list of like badass mothers because it it, it kind of only the ones the lists that I found were always talking about basically what mothers were great mothers and it was always what they did for their children that made them great and Mm. that was it and I was like no they can just be great mothers for like you know or mother characters who happen to be mothers and are also great they don't have Mm. to just be defined by what they do for their children like speaking from a personal point of view um so when I was pregnant with my first and I gave birth um after the birth, someone 
stopped asking me questions about my personal life, except insofar as it pertained to my kid. So I had obviously become a vessel for my kid. And it was a very like, oh, okay moment. Uh, and I'm sure that's not an isolated experience. And that was a bit freaky. I mean, that was a bit freaky because, you know, I hadn't expected it. Although in hindsight, you know, media should have prepared me. But, but you know, it's, it's a thing that happens. Well, I was thinking about some of the examples on some of the lists where it's kind of difficult to... When I was saying earlier about horror being the family against the world or against whatever evil is stalking them, I mean the two the two great examples I really like were Molly Weasley and um, Ripley herself uh, in Alien Aliens when she looks after Newt. But mm. these the trouble is that they do end up being defined by their motherhood role, but it's also kind of drawn into a wider role. So Ripley is trying to protect everyone. It's just at the end, there's just her and Newt left. And, you know, that's the one she's trying to fight to protect. And obviously that's the one that's really hyped up. And again, Molly Weasley does some amazing stuff, but is always seen fighting next to her children and for them. So it kind of just gets gets swept up a little bit, I think. And sometimes you can have some kick-ass mothers who are doing more than protecting their children, but because their children are there, you automatically kind of just lump them in with the, oh, they're doing it for their children. It's actually, no, they're kicking ass and saving the world. The one... Ex- um, the one example I would say goes against that is Sarah Connor. I've never seen the Chronicles, I have to say, but in Terminator 2, she is very much saving the world and not so much about the kid. I mean, obviously her kid is part of the world, um, you know, as saving the world will save her child, but she is so divorced from any kind of motherly feeling and just so fixated on saving the world. But I'm not necessarily sure that they spin that in a positive light really given that she ends up in a mental asylum or if you if you leave your child to try and save the world then uh, you will succeed but your child will hate you and you'll end up in a uh, straitjacket so it's not the best of uh, examples there i'll throw a curveball example in um polgara from the bulgariad so she's not obviously at the beginning of the book she's not a mother physically like she hasn't given birth to her twins it comes much much further along in the story but she she, no one could argue that she really isn't introduced to us in a a very motherly role like she is she's you know garyan calls her aunt but actually she's his mother effectively she she looks after him he when he when he um, refers to her, the way he thinks about her is in a very motherly way. Um, and it, it comes as quite, I think, quite a shock to him when he finally realises that she is an extremely powerful sorceress and a, and a woman who has lived for 4,000 years and has had this enormous history before he kind of ever came to be. So I think she's quite an interesting one because she's definitely got um, a, a real kind of not a Molly Weasley streak, but but some of that because there's she she's always complimented on her cooking. Like she has these skills that we associate with being a housewife, and at the same time, she's still the you know Bel- Belgaris daughter, like the and you know someone who is a legend in her own right. Mm. That's a really odd example. I don't usually draw examples, and you know a, a, a fantasy that's that old, but. Um, I've always liked her character uh, and I thought that she was always a bit of a, of a dichotomy between, you know, two, you know, she's a beautiful, clearly a beautiful woman and men desire her, but she's, that's almost eclipsed by her 
love and her mother the the kind of she has an enormous capacity for love and she shows that to kind of all of the characters but especially to the hero yeah i have to admit it's been a long long while since i actually read these books they're probably somewhere on my shelves they come down for comfort reads occasionally you know you have like harry potter the bulgariad (laughs) (laughs) i'm reading the dark is rising at the moment another comfort read it's so great (laughs) Yeah, that's that's on my shelves right there, so I can see I can actually see it from where I'm sitting. I'm more of a Terry Pratchett comfort reread person. Oh yeah, I've got all the Pratchetts here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've got the Pratchett audiobooks, and if I'm feeling low, it's like mm. yeah, that's what I'm going for. As soon as Brexit happened, I was like, right, I'm rereading Jingo. I need that right now. Well, I mean, actually, in Pratchett, you do have uh, Nanny Og, who's the you know the mother, um, which of the trio slash quartet and doesn't really behave in the way that you expect a mother to behave. <laughs> no. <laughs> and of course you also have Magrat later on. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I make a wow. comment about how she's always been a wet hen, but being a mother changes that and she's still she's still excellent. Yeah. Good point. And of course Lady Sybil, who is quite awesome. But in in a less I don't want to say proactive way. She's more kind of supportive and she goes places where Vimes can't but Vimes does seem to get the majority of the action whereas at least the witches get involved in hunting vampires and all sorts of fun mm. things mm. yeah it's yeah, funny because yeah. I think Mag- I think Magrat like actually becomes a more interesting character after motherhood uh, in, in the later books I think she really kind of like blossoms and becomes really interesting and more dynamic and uh, and that's yeah that that's like a that seems to go against the the general flow. Yeah, no, very much, very much so. Because generally, it does go the other way, where mm. after motherhood, the character suddenly disappears and becomes all about the baby. And it's interesting that we one of our questions that we were going to debate is why can't children be taken on the adventures? And of course, Magrat straps the baby onto her back when they go off to find Granny Weatherwax when the vampires have invaded. And it's just like, they're like, you're not taking a baby. She's like, we're not leaving her here. Yeah, though I have to say, I'm side-eyeing a bunch of fantasy um, adventures where, like, the mother just, like... Well, actually, the, the worst offender is not the mother when it's a character who's not the mother who, like, just takes along the newborn on horseback in the wilderness. And I'm like, okay, so you're not stopping to feed the baby which is a new board. And also, what are you feeding the baby exactly? Because it's a new board. It's going to need to feed approximately every two to three hours with breast milk that you guys emphatically did not take along on this trip. But uh, but that said, yeah, I could totally see, like, you know, just from zero to six months old, just trap the baby and then go. <laughs> But I feel like in general, one of the reflections that I was having, I think I was talking about it with my husband, is that fantasy in general doesn't actually have a lot of children. It's like there's this big gaping hole between birth and teenagehood. Teenagers, plenty of. But like even toddlers, not so many of them that I can think of. There's the the ones that I vividly remember are the ones in uh, the Pirate Queen's... um, Toddler, toddlers. I think there's two of them in Scott Lynch's Red Seas and the Red Skies. Oh, that's on my to-read list. I've heard good things about that. Oh, well, at, at one point in this story, there's the meet a pirate queen, and the pirate queen has got, um, I think it's one toddler um, who's like two or three, and who just like gets 
on the ship. And when there's a battle, like someone takes the toddler down at the bottom of the ship where they can't actually get hurt. And and then when there is no battle, she's um, just there on the bridge playing with uh, hopefully not swords. Um, <laughs> but it's very much like she's a part of like daily pirate life. And it's obviously not, you know, the main point of the story. But it's nice to have that kind of detail. And I was reflecting when I read that book that actually there's not that many books where that happens. There's a, there's also um, Elizabeth Bear's The First Book of the Lotus Kingdoms, uh, The Stone in the Skull, uh, was one, one of the main characters uh, has, I think it's a toddler, or I think it's a, a very young child, like between two and five as well, who is, you know, just there. Because very often when you do have children, they turn out to be really plot significant or there's this sort of like messiah thing or they get kidnapped or both. Um, but you don't actually have just background children just as you don't really have. Well, I mean, you don't really have mothers full stop, but you also don't have background mothers. Thinking about what you're saying about taking a child on a, a quest and sort of, you know, stopping to breastfeed it and everything. And one of the stories I mentioned quite a lot um, is The Vagrant by Peter Newman, where that kind of happens, but it's a guy who carries the baby around. And he, he takes a, a goat with him, you know, and they have to stop and, and feed the baby and, you know, make sure they feed the goat so the goat, ha- so the goat can produce milk to feed the baby. And, you know, when he's about to join in battle, he sort of ends up putting the baby you know, in a little <laughs> blanket somewhere just so that he can, you know, fight and the baby's okay. Um, but, I mean, as much as I love that, you know, I, I do kind of wish that Pete had chosen to have a woman doing that, because one of the things that we were discussing before the show is how much women are demonised for leaving their children behind, but men aren't really. And, you know, there are, there are lots of sort of father figures who go on quests with the chosen one, whether that's male or female, but you never kind of get that with the girls. Mm. No, it's it's a very, you know, gender set of expectation. And by gender, that means obviously like, you know, um, cisgenders, right? It's even worse if you happen to be uh, trans and non-binary. Well, exactly. Uh, but like, you know, as soon as you fall outside of the gender roles, it's kind of like even worse. But it's a very, um, a very different set of expectations and bars to clear for mothers compared to fathers. And, you know, very often the hero has this kind of like even when their father is not around anymore, they have this kind of like very important relationship with their father, whether that's positive or negative, but their mother is just sort of there or not there. And I mean, one of the things that I also wish was happening more is that, well, you know, we talk a lot about like, badass characters and that tends to be associated with things that are very heavily gendered male so you know grabbing a sword and going to fight monsters good badass taking care of the children someone has to do it but not a badass and not valued when it's a woman and not valued at all when it's a man So there's a set of standards by which we judge what's heroic and what's worth telling stories about that still feels very, to me, very in line with a masculine set of expectations. Um, And I realize that, you know, there's a school of storytelling which is all about the conflict, but why is that conflict necessarily 
first, I mean, first off, that's something I don't necessarily agree off, agree with. But also, why is that conflict necessarily something that involves war? I don't have an answer to that. <laughs> I suppose if you're going to have conflict that isn't war and isn't going to be a chosen one and can bring parents along, I suppose the ultimate for that is probably political fantasy, um, a bit like Game of Thrones, for example. Um, but I suppose even then, it you sort of you've always got the risk that the mother character will be seen as trying to protect her child because courts are vicious places. And then you have <laughs> something like Cersei in Game of Thrones, where I have repeatedly said how annoyed I am that she's in the series. She's not allowed to be just a psychopath. Her bad behaviour and all of her cruelty has to be seen as protecting her children. Although I haven't seen season eight. And most of her children are dead at that point. So what her motivations are in season eight, I don't know. But since it's not got a great reception, or rather a mixed reception online, perhaps it's uh, best to wait until I've actually seen it before I comment further. But certainly in the books, she was just a horrible character, independent of any motherly feelings she might have. Um, and that seems to be kind of left out. But I think, if you like you're saying, if you want to try and involve mothers and fathers and have, give them an active role in bringing up children court politics and political fantasy is a, a great place to try and explore that it it is but the sheer number of political fantasies that i have read where it's only men that matters is like amazing um it's like you know women are there to like bear children uh be cooks um sleep with people and that really seems to be all they do and i'm like even in a universe where men hold all the power, and that's a big if, uh, you do know that women were doing other things. And I feel like very often, I read a lot of his, uh, a bunch of like um, historical novels, and I feel like very often to me, a lot of court fantasy feels like it's not getting the complexity of historical novels. Uh, one of the series that I really like is uh, Dorothy Dunnett's uh, Lemon Chronicles. Uh, which happens in Scotland uh, around the time of Mary, Queen of, Sto of Scots. Um, and it's, you know, nominally, aside from Mary, uh, Queen of Scots, a lot of the power is supposed to be held by men. But but you immediately see in the series that that's actually not the case at all. And that even those women that are meant to be home while their husbands are fighting on the border are actually having quite big roles in how they manage their own households, how they how they network with each other, how they form friendships with each other, how they try to protect. At uh, one point in the series, there's a 13-year-old and some of the other women come together and try to, you know, talk her out of a bad arranged marriage. And so there's there's all these kind of, like, network between women, the fact that they hold power, the fact that, you know, sleeping around to get power is a totally legit way of playing the game and... A lot of times what I find is that in political fantasies, women are shamed for it. Uh, and I'm like, but, you know, if you set up the rules so that the only way that women can have power is by influencing men, I'm kind of men. I'm kind of not too sure why they're shamed for that. That feels like criticizing them for being good at what they're doing, essentially. And so a lot of the times it feels to me that I feel quite I end up feeling quite frustrated with these because they're trying to have their cake and eat it. They still want to be all about the men. And they forget that actually a lot of court fans, a lot of like court politics was played by women and they were playing it, playing them very, very well. Well, 
since Elliot mentioned historical fiction, then I'm allowed to jump in with Philippa Gregory, um, who <laughs> is a bit of a hit and miss author. But I mean, she writes a lot about the Tudors, and one of my favourite books of hers um, is The Boleyn Inheritance, which deals with Kitty, uh, sorry, Kitty Howard, Catherine Howard, and Anne of Cleves. And it is so refreshing because it is exactly the opposite to what Elliot says. It is about women who are playing the game and playing politics, but aren't necessarily sleeping around to do it. I mean, Anne Boleyn is always fascinating, and she's a woman who completely overturned religious structure. But there is always this underlying element that she was using sex or rather the lack of it to get what she wanted. Whereas you get characters like Anne of Cleves um, who are just fascinating. One, the one woman to survive Henry VIII, what, sorry, apart from obviously the last last one as well, the one woman to get out of a marriage alive with Henry VIII and become known as his fond sister and to become so popular. It's like, why don't we see Anne of Cleves characters within fantasy? And, you know, like Elizabeth I, and there were so many fantastic people, females from history who really could fulfill those roles and we just we just don't see them like Elliot says hmm. uh, have you read the Kate Elliot article on tour.com uh, how to write um, women in epic fantasy without quotas I think is the title it's a 10,000 world long article about um, it's basically quotes about everything that women did during the the antiquity in the middle ages so it's like women who go to fight women who like run entire households women who rule um and it's meant to be an answer to the oh but historically women had no power it's just great that's I am, amazing i am going to quote you know history at you hi here and obviously you know there's a prologue about but you know we don't actually we have dragons we don't actually need to stick with history which is another problem. But even if we admit that history is our main inspiration, then here is everything that you think is uh, historical, but actually is not. Mm, that excuse, isn't it, is too often used to just whitewash the role of women in yeah. history, just to say, literally, there was, they, this is these are the roles they had, they didn't go beyond them. And I hate that because it's so lazy and so obviously untrue. And it happens not just to women, it, ha- it happens to non-binary, it happens to trans, it happens, it's racial. And it's like, I cannot believe we're still having to have these discussions. Mm, well, I feel like part of it is because fantasy is this, um, you know, idealised, and I, I am very much not using that in a positive sense, streamlined, then maybe, which has fewer connotation version of history. This is very much tied to our imaginary. Um, one of the threads I retweeted in the past three days, I can't exactly pinpoint when, it was about the Victorian family and the fact that um, we have this image of the Victorian family as being the prototype of the nuclear family and with the get married um, and then have a single person until death uh, to be your partner and then not remarry. And the thread I retweeted was actually the Victorians invented the messy divorce, the messy public scandalous divorce, because um, I can't remember the exact technical terms, but like a divorce suddenly became possible for women around that time, but they had to prove it. And so the, you would have those lengthy... Uh, court battles that were chronicled in the newspaper and so much of that is actually not in our imaginaries at all 
what we think we know about history as, you know, we as a society rather than we individually is a lot of it is actually has actually got not a whole lot to do with history per se. It's more of um, an image. It's one of the things that fascinates me, actually. Um, there's also this image of, you know, the um, the golden age of, so in France um, and in other countries, this golden age of before World War Two, which is fascinating because it's got no basis in reality whatsoever because it was a time of... Um, misery for most of the population uh, most of the working class um, were in very poor health with very precarious employment most of the middle class were not doing much better and there's about one class two classes that came out of it looking better than others they were the aristocrats and the bourgeoisie uh, and even then it wasn't a terrific life and obviously you know if you were France calls indigène, so the people in the colonies, you were not even on the map of uh, people who counted. And there's this fascinating sort of everything was better back then, which I'm like, but where? (laughs) Why? How? Life was short and miserable for 99% of the population, and 1% of the population was basically oppressing everyone to various degrees, we didn't have medical advances. We had no standards, which meant that people could get poisoned by milk because it had been left to, like, rot in the sun. But that's what happened. But what we have in our imagination is what in France is called La Belle Époque, the beautiful era, which is dresses and balls and all sorts of things. And it's just, to me, very interesting how a sort of mythological version of history actually is what gets passed down rather than what actually happened. Mm, I think it's exactly the same uh, in England. Um, I think that's where, not to get too political, but that's where all the Brexit kind of debates are coming from, that, that lots of people are drawing from this, that there was a golden age and it is not now, but it was. And there are ways that we can get back to it, which is exactly the same. It's this fascination with the retrospective with a past that is no longer now. But, you know, it just as you've been saying, it was never there then either. It doesn't <coughs> exist. It is it is mythology. And that's another, I mean, I feel like this is a subject for another time that we could just kind of get onto the discourse between um, history and, and mythology. Um, and I feel like in a way that links back to kind of what Tolkien was trying to do, creating a mythology for England. And I feel like he succeeded in some way because that's this this kind of retrospective golden age thinking is really lies at the basis of all fantasy and especially epic fantasy. Mm. Yeah, I feel I mean, part of the reason I wrote House of Shattered Wings was actually to engage with the sort of like mythologizing of history and the way mm-hmm. that people just clung to this idea of the past that actually didn't have a whole lot of connection with what actually happened. But it is, yeah, I hadn't thought about how it was, I mean, I was thinking mostly of history, but it is true that is also something that's very potent as a root of fantasy, as a genre. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. But then the same could be said about science fiction, because we have the same problems with the lack of representation for, for mothers, or that we're just repeating this kind of 
nostalgic view of oh well you know this is how a family is and this is how child rearing happens we're just doing the same things over and over again even in a completely made up future or different species even but we still so often can't really see beyond what we know already or what we think of today as the goal of a family writers are meant to be imaginative and yet they're missing Mm. out on that entire piece (laughs) they could be so much more interesting Mm. no certainly um i mean one of the people i think is doing interesting well i mean been doing it for a while really but uh lois mcmaster bourgeold and the um i cannot remember what the technical term is but the fact that um they incubate babies in um artificial wombs outside of the mother's um actual womb in the Vokersigan series. And these are like what, thirty years old? Yeah. Twenty years old. So they're you know, the, the series obviously is still ongoing, but like this particular feature has been there since the beginning. And it's quite interesting to see that there's not a whole lot of people doing similar things actually. In in some of Becky Chambers' stuff, she does have different kinds of family setups, which is nice. You can see if you go back to Le Guin, because Le Guin was amazing. Um, again, you have interesting takes on gender and family roles. Mm. I haven't read the third one, but uh, but Yoon Ha Lee's uh, Nine Fox Gambit, the middle one, the second one in his trilogy, Raven Stratagem, I think, is the middle one also has like a glimpse at like other places in in the empire that Yun has created and where you have different familiar structures. So Alia, as you say in your essay Horrific Pregnancies and Dead Mothers, pregnancy when it does appear in narrative, it is usually depicted as as horrific. Um and quite often it's like body horror i mean why why does fiction play so willingly into this trope like why are we obsessed with scaremongering kind of over over pregnancy um and why i feel like have we not reached a point where fiction should be depicting pregnancy as a more natural and positive process for for the body to to go through, or for a person, well, to go through mentally and physically. Gonna suspect that a lot of these are written by people who never got pregnant, and I don't mean all of these because I mean there is, to be fair, there is totally a body horror component to pregnancy. Again, I can totally see having been through two myself that there's something scary that can be scary about pregnancies, and also that they can be you know, dangerous in spite of the fact that we now have a much lower maternal mortality than we used to. But again, you know, it's a question of what narratives we're getting and we're not really getting narratives about pregnancies that go well. I feel that some of this is simply people not living through them and finding it a very uncomfortable feel thing to deal with still. Some of it probably goes back to the dying in childbirth trope. Again, you know, we're dealing with tropes here that have a much longer shelf life than the lifetime of the people who wrote them. So 
we are still dragging some of these tropes back from end of the 19th century. And yeah, I think it's past time that we actually had some pregnancies that um, are actually do not end in blood and gore. For me, the quintessential movie about pregnancy as body horror actually is Alien. Yes. In which the parallels are pretty heavy. Don't get me wrong, it's a great movie. It's really not a good outlook that the outlook of Alien on pregnancy turns out to be the outlook of most of science fiction on pregnancy. That's a little more problematic. If we do not have pregnancy as body horror, we have Star Wars episodes two and three. Um, there's this great essay online about um, how the Old Republic fell because of lack of proper obstetrician, obstetrics, obstetric care. There's this very advanced society where a woman can get pregnant and not actually know that she's carrying twins until she dies giving birth to them. And this is not a woman who lives in a backward uh, part of the country. This is a woman who is a senator in the center of the old republic, so presumably has access to the best level of care and for whom presumably money is not an object. And then she dies of, I don't care what the droid says, she dies of postpartum depression or hemorrhagy um, induced by delivering the twins. Uh, And I'm like, so we have a society which has lightsabers, which can, you know, give people prosthetics, quite advanced prosthetics, can fix people who fall into vats of lava, but cannot be bothered to do anything about pregnancies. And that tells me that A, it was written by someone who has no fucking idea about how pregnancies really run. And B, this is a society whose priorities are deeply, deeply, deeply fucked up. You know, I've never viewed it that way before, but now that you mention it, it is remarkably, yeah, it, it's not quite quite following the logic of the rest of the universe, is it? No, it just feels like a massive blind spot in the, mid- in the middle of the universe. And I think that's the problem with a lot of, you know, pregnancy narratives is that it's just a massive blind spot in the middle of otherwise very well conceived and very lovingly depicted descriptions of society, science, technological innovations, characters, you name it. Well, I have to agree with body horror kind of thing, because having been pregnant myself and, and so on, it is it is very bizarre to have something growing inside you and to not be able to see it or understand it and just hope that it's kind of doing all right in there and, you know, that when it comes out, it'll, it'll all be okay. I don't know whether it's possible to normalise normalize it. And I don't even know if there is a normal for pregnancy, to be honest, because I think everybody responds to it in a different way. I, I really disliked being pregnant with all the health stuff that came with it, but I'm a special mm. case. And I know a lot of people just loved it and had the pregnancy glow. Um, and a lot of people have different views on, you know, mm. getting it out there and there are elective caesareans and things. So I think it is it is a something that is very, it's a bit like it is a bit like horror because it is so subjective with everybody having their own different opinions or their different takes on it. Mm. I feel like what we need is a variety of takes on it because at the moment it feels to me like the majority 99% take is pregnancy is this horrible thing and then you die giving birth, which is 
a narrative, but not the narrative. Well, I suppose there's always this fear, particularly in post-apocalyptic fiction, that if we did completely live in a world that had been completely destroyed, obviously the chances of finding a doctor if you were pregnant are very, very low. Um, I mean, I know the, the Walking Dead dealt with that, but I think quite a good one was the film I mentioned earlier called The Quiet Place, A Quiet Place, where a woman does give birth on her own with monsters roaming around, and it's mostly unbelievable that she can do it quite so quietly (coughs) but that aside it does actually have quite a positive spin on pregnancy and she survives and the baby survives and they've kind of planned for it and I I thought that was a really nice refreshing take on it because you you don't tend to to get it very much Uh, and I think if given the society we're currently in as we record this then you've got all the stuff in America with the Alabama laws on abortion and things and control over women's bodies is a really hot topic right now and it is also particularly with The Handmaid's Tale being so popular it is a topic that is just ripe for exploiting so I don't think we're going to see much positive um, fiction in relation to this until perhaps it's it's all settled down Mm. if it ever does yeah I don't know, actually, because um, I feel like we also got a lot of these narratives, ironically, as a counterpart to, um, you know, women finally being in control of their own bodies. So it may also be that we start having not only dystopias, but a sort of more, maybe not utopia, but a sort of more idealistic vision on it as a reaction, as escapism, rather than warning absolutely i mean it's it does seem at the moment there is only one take on it and whilst it is understandable again it comes back to this whole idea of mothers doesn't it as in there's nothing out there that is particularly positive right now and it's assumed that any character who is pregnant in a movie is pretty much going to die in the same way that any character who goes down the dark steps just holding a a cooking spoon and a torch that's low on batteries is going to die. It's just a trope we've come to accept. And I think it's going to take a little while longer before people can actually overcome that. And I think we need a few more good representations within sort of wider films like A Quiet Place um, Mm. for people to go, well, actually, you know, pregnant women can survive. Mm. Well, I mean, to be fair, I feel like, you know, again, there's a sort of dichotomy of like, you can, you have the pregnancy as body of horror and the other one is uh, what I think of as the Virgin Mary one, which is the mother of the chosen one. Admittedly more in a fantasy setting, but you also have it in an SF setting, like um, Children of Men, for instance, where the mother is special, but only because of the person that she's incubating, not because of herself. And once she has given birth, if she doesn't die in childbirth, she becomes unimportant because the baby's there. Going back to Star Wars with Anakin's mother is literally a virgin birth in that she there was no father. She just becomes pregnant. And the only thing really that is special about her is the fact that she's given birth to, to Anakin. Yeah, and then she gets fridged. Mm. Yep. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, there's... She also has no, um, I mean, her only plot line is being the mother of Anakin. I mean, there's also the bit that her you know, kidnap and death basically is, is one of the precipitating factors to 
Anakin having his first meltdown. But yeah, exactly. It's it's only to do with Anakin. Yeah, but all of it is, you know, she only exists that Anakin can feel pain or something like that. Um, which is, for me, that's the fridging because she dies so that he can feel that pain and the consequences of that pain. But she doesn't feel like a developed character in the sense that we don't really know what she wanted other than the best for Anakin. Yeah, completely. Should we talk about what we would like to see? You know, like let's get off all the the negativity. Yes, there's some terrible tropes. There's all this stuff that we really wish people would just move on from. But you know, mm-hmm. are there examples of ones which you think are fantastic, or ones that you know you really want to see more of? I really want to see like nice, um, nice mother side characters. The the one I really like was so in uh, in Full Metal Alchemist. The two main characters, uh, Ed and Al, are two young, well, young kid teenagers, really. They're 12 or 13. And they're, su- they're supposed to be those all-powerful alchemists who are able to do anything. And one of the early episodes, they go to this isolated mountain place with uh, a family who receives them. And the mother in the family is heavily pregnant. And while they get stuck in the mountain due to the weather, she starts giving birth. And Ed and Al are literally the only people around. I just watched this episode like a week ago. Yeah. (laughs) Yay, it's amazing. It's amazing and it's funny, but it's also very, um, you know, it's also a life lesson for them because they suddenly discover that, um, well, birth is a thing and they're going to have to deal with the fact that they're helping bring a life in this world. And and it's also, you know, it also brings all sorts of complicated reflections on what alchemy can and cannot do. Mm. And and I thought it was really, it's really well done. It's really interesting. And it's really, the characters, the main characters themselves are not parents, but they have to deal with parenthood. Yeah, and and that's it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because actually, their own mother is pretty much you could say fridged, because the father is absent, and the mother is the loving, lovely, wonderful mother who is just. Um, I mean, they they idolize her, and then she gets kind of killed off, so they can then you know obviously then that starts their their grand journey, adventure. Yeah. So it's I thought because of that that episode with the pregnancy is is more poignant because you know otherwise it could go down a less um you know a less positive um kind of way it could have just you know but I actually yeah I think it that was it was a really lovely scene particularly as um Al says uh like kind of I I I didn't realize how magical this was like you're amazing like actually tells her that you are amazing and that (laughs) like and that's incredible that was just a great moment where he actually acknowledges that you know the the power that a woman has in childbirth and for 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 producing this new life yeah another thing i'd like to see more of is like mother characters who happen to be mothers but also have other preoccupations beyond their children I would also definitely echo Megan's suggestion of having like romantic relationships for mothers, which we don't see enough of. You know, when we were talking about like the body horror stuff around pregnancy and it's their bodies are just 
kind of seen for procreation. It's like, if you're a mother, you're still sexy. You still have your own life. You still, you want someone to be with you. And, and I, don't, I just think that I would like to see mothers enjoy their bodies and, and have their bodies be about more than just giving birth. There's um, Eva Darius, uh, who's a, uh, a pseudonym for uh, Hilary Monaghan, uh, wrote this book called The Awesome, which is basically um, what would happen if Buffy and her mother teamed up to fight vampires. And the mother character in that one is really good, uh, Janice, I think her name is. And so the, the mother character in that one has like very definite agenda, for, like, you know, obviously cares for her kids very much but also has a very definite agenda and a very, like, you know, she's got a life of her own, preoccupation of her own. And even though she's not the main character, she's a side character, and the, the main story is told by her daughter in first person. You see the dynamic of their relationship, and you see how that evolves with how the, you know, some of the choices that the mother makes uh, for her own life, not necessarily, I mean, obviously for her daughter's life, but also for her own life. And I would also like to see more of those dynamics. I know that we were talking earlier about the Scott Lynch character with a couple of toddlers. I must admit, one of the things I tend to find in fantasy and science fiction, whatever, is that if there is a mother, they only have one child. And as a mother of an only child, as an only child myself, I don't have a problem with that. But it would be quite interesting to see how a character in the middle of a battle deals with two toddlers having a squabble. Um, because I know that that is part of a lot of lives of all my friends you know who all have two kids uh, and I think Molly Weasley obviously came quite close to that and obviously Elastigirl as well in um, The Incredibles yeah. although they're both they're both designed for kids so having a wide variety of kids is cool but you know most of the stuff I thought about like um, Alien, um, Lucifer which is, is quite good fun, um, Terminator and Sarah Connor, bloody rose things like that they've all they've all got just one kid and that kind of really does fixate the mother's issues and it's all about this one child and it is quite close to the chosen one in her own particular little world I think it'd be really interesting if you've got a mother of two kids perhaps one who's going to save the world and one who's just a complete layabout or one who's the sidekick and one who's the hero I think there's so many more dynamics you could explore within motherhood <laughs> rather than just focusing on the, the mother-child relationship mm, there's um I mean it's starting to be quite old but uh Charmed uh Piper one of the witches on Charmed had two children um I can't really recall what happened with them but you had that dynamic of like they were two kid, two sons, I think. So of yeah. relationship between brothers. Yeah, it's going back a while. I can't really remember, but I did watch it at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, one of my favorite um, Disney Pixar's was Brave, because I liked the mother and daughter dynamic on it, and I thought mm. it was very unusual that you get to see so much of the the as I, I use air quotes Disney princess's mother. You know, like clearly brave is not totally the mother's story she's not the main character but she's incredibly important and you know and i i think my favorite scenes from that film are when she's a bear and you know and they're they're having to like try to learn these two women of different ages are trying to learn to understand each other and understand each other's viewpoint and you know and she's a mother of four 
Um, and and yet she's kind of taken out of her traditional role <coughs> and put into, you know, in a, in a very physical way, like obviously a magical way as well. Um, but it was it was quite unusual to find that sort of narrative in in a kind of Disney setting. Uh, there's um, Lilo and Stitch, which has the sister as a mother figure, which I also thought yeah. were interesting kind of dynamics. And actually, I would like to see, you know, not strictly motherhood, but more siblings dynamics in adult science fiction. I think in young adult, it's more common. But in adult science fiction, I feel like that's not always there. Or, if, you know, mm. in political fantasy, yeah. As you say, like it, once, it's always the hero on their own. So mm. you sort of the the family ties kind of slip away, and they only come up if it's an antagonistic or a problem for them. You know, wouldn't it be nice if they got this or whatever? But then they're you know just going over to their brothers for for the weekly family meal. I don't know. <laughs> Anything could mm. just be more interesting. Oh, I love the idea of a court political drama that's written around the family meals. That would be amazing. <laughs> Ooh, nice. <laughs> that would be lovely. Hmm. Well, I think, I mean, actually, you know, more family family reunions, family meals, family, you know, quiet family times, which mm. I really, I mean, to me, these feel like very important for character building and I don't feel like you, I see quite as many as them as I want you know you mentioned Lucifer and for instance I love the show but I also thought that sometimes it could use more breathing space and more of like a character's like just hanging out essentially no I absolutely agree I mean it it's not the deepest show in the world <laughs> I mean it, it's got some fun characters <laughs> um and I mentioned it simply because it was quite nice to see obviously a racy very sexy American drama, which was clearly not taking itself very seriously, but had portrayed a mother as having a life beyond a child, but also having to get yeah. back from her day job because, you know, she might be out fighting crime with the devil, but also her child is sick and needs to be picked up from kindergarten and things like that. I just thought it was a, it was quite a nice balance given how shallow it was in general. Sorry, you were talking about um, Chloe. Yep. <laughs> yes. I, was, I thought you were talking about Charlotte. You know, ah. the, the, the actual mother of all creation, ah. <laughs> no, who is, of course, another mother. <laughs> but but yeah, but she does have two. Well, I mean, she does have two sons that we see. Obviously, yeah. there's more. But <laughs> obviously, there's more. And I was just like kindergarten, kinder. I don't think any of her sons. Are- oh, it's <laughs> Chloe. <laughs> Sorry, yes, that's true. <laughs> And on that note, I think it's time to call it a night. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Elliot. Thank you. It was great. There's no denying that mothers are demonstrably absent from most speculative fiction. Whether they died off screen or simply have no tangible presence in the narrative, there is a gaping hole in our stories where mothers should be. If mothers do appear, they are fridged relegated to having their entire character defined by their children in one way or another. Mothers are given none of the freedoms fathers are, while accruing none of the respect. And we have had enough. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Lucy Hounsom and Charlotte Bond.